America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Like a chrysalis, we're emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination, and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business and the Knowledge Economy. Sponsored by SAGE, energizing the success of businesses and communities around the world through the imagination of our people and smart technology. I'm Ron Baker, along with my good friend, Veris Age Institute colleague and co-host, Ed Kless. And Ed, I'm happy to report I'm here with another Veris Age colleague, so this is an all Veris Age show. And I'm in London, England, in a hotel next to Heathrow Airport, and we're going to interview Veris Age Institute practicing fellow and founder of O'Byrne and Kennedy Chartered Accountants, Paul Kennedy. So I'm really excited about today's show, Ed. Me too, Ron. This is going to be fantastic. Paul is a a brilliant guy, and what's great about this is that talking to him, we won't be able to have people say to us, but it can't be done. This value (laughs) pricing stuff can't be done. (laughs) <laughs> so, Paul Kennedy, welcome to the Soul of Enterprise. Oh, thank, thank you very much. It really is my uh, my pleasure to uh, to speak to you this, on this occasion. And Ed, I hate, I hate to say this, but uh, Paul Kennedy de- predates you. I met Paul and uh, his late partner, Paul O'Byrne, who we've talked about many times on this show, and we'll probably talk some more about today because it's really hard to talk to Paul Kennedy without remembering Paul O'Byrne. Um, but I met both of these fine gentlemen in March of 2000, so I think a good three years before you and I met, Ed, and um, they, they just uh, they heard me do a talk on value pricing and firm of the future, and I think they were a bit skeptical. I, I remember Paul did a mind map of the talk, and he showed it to me afterwards, and I was just blown away by that because it was really cool to see your own presentation in a, in a visual you know, mind map. I'd never really seen that before. And, uh, and I struck up with friendship with these guys and an ongoing debate. And uh, it's, it's been a great relationship ever since. So, um, Paul Kennedy, I'm not going to dive into your background because it's voluminous and there's a million things to say. Suffice it to think, folks, that I believe Paul Kennedy um, of O'Byrne and Kennedy is, is probably one of the most innovative firms in the world. Uh, and uh, you'll, you'll see why as, as you hear his story. But I guess, Paul, let's start, let's go back to the beginning and let's talk about how you and Paul O'Byrne met and what forced you guys to launch your own firm. Right. Well, if we go back to what we think of as the Dark Ages, um, back in 1987, uh, in fact, if we go back before that, Paul and I actually went to the same school. Not that we knew each other at school. He was a few years older than me. But he recruited me into a firm in North London, and uh, a good firm, and a, a firm that we both trained with. And he went on to become a partner. And, but in 1987, for, for all sorts of reasons, we decided to leave that firm and uh, start our own practice. So uh, we sort of had a, a, lop, a leap into the unknown in, uh, on the 1st of October 1987, and, um, yeah, we set up a, what we now call a Me Too business, um, a, a, a totally um, undifferentiated accounting firm, and, and it was that way for many years. But uh, we were happy. We, uh, we were two very young, naive, um, keen, ambitious accountants, frankly, didn't have a clue, really, but um, we were enjoying ourselves, and, uh, yeah, we, we were on our own on, on our way and going. And, uh, yeah, for, for a few years at least, we stayed blissfully happy. <laughs> and and what, was your, what was your strategy or your client selection criteria, or did you even have one back then? Yeah, we, we wouldn't have known what you were talking about in those days, <laughs> client selection criteria. But, you know, we joked many years later that our client selection criteria was, you know, did they have a wallet and were they breathing? 
Uh, and I remember Paul saying, well, hang on, if they weren't breathing, we could do the estate work. <laughs> so uh, we, uh, we, we took on anything and everything in those days. And, uh, and truthfully, we worked for people who didn't have a wallet. And uh, I can tell you that because we had massive bad debts in, the, in those early days. So hopefully you get in the picture of um, just, just how useless, how, how incompetent we were at running an accounting practice. But uh, if this, uh, this session is going to be all about our, uh, our mistakes, then I'm afraid we just don't have long enough. <laughs> we, we've, uh, we, we ought to be able to talk about some of the successes because we made plenty of mistakes, I can, I can assure you. So you start out your traditional, for the most part, accounting yeah. firm. You're doing accounts, you're doing tax filings, compliance work. What changed? What got you guys onto this track where, and we're going to talk about where you are today, but what, what started that whole pivot, if you will? Yeah, well, I'd like to tell you that um, we strategically analyzed our options and um, came up with some really smart ideas. But the truth is that, that uh, Paul O'Byrne was merely bored. Uh, he was incredibly bored and he kept saying, I'm not doing this for the rest of my life. Even though, actually, we just started to make some money. And, uh, but no, he, fortunately for me, I was in business with somebody who, who always, always looking for something new and something more interesting. So uh, we started, um, he started doing some re- reading. In uh, those days, we were reading Jay Abrahams and Michael Gerber and things. And we kept chatting about this sort of stuff, thinking, you know what, we could do this with our clients. We could do uh, what you might call business coaching nowadays, although we didn't know what to call it in those days. And we had a go at doing this stuff. We started doing uh, what other people would refer to as value-added work. I'm never quite sure what that means, but uh, we had a go at trying to help clients, which, of course, is a differentiation in itself in our industry. But uh, we, uh, we, we had a go at doing things, and uh, once again, we did it quite badly. <laughs> uh, but we were trying, and uh, and I guess then what changed us was the um, the, the boot camps that came along with uh, Paul Dunn and Rick Payne. Uh, Paul persuaded us to go to this boot camp. Although I must say, at the time, I remember thinking this is a lot of money, and I'm really not sure what these guys are going to teach us. But um, one of the best things we ever did, and uh, we came back and we suddenly realised that if we were going to do this and do this properly, we needed to change, and we needed to change a lot. Um, and that was really the catalyst for um, the, the big changes in our in our business model and the way we approached our, our practice. So it's 1997. You're boot camp graduates, and um, by the way, I, t- I did the first boot camp over here too in in, in London. When, that's when I first uh, well, not when I first met Paul, but did the, the did the boot camp over here, and it was quite a program. It was a great program for those listeners who know who Paul Dunn and Rick Payne are. But you have 500 or so clients in 1997. You guys decide we want to be, we want to do more business advisory work, move up the value curve, if we will, maybe give up some of this compliance work. What changed? What what got you to to make that move? And then how did you make that move? Because I mean, quite frankly, it requires you to fire a whole lot of clients. Yeah. Well, we we were I think it was about 230 people on this boot camp. And 228 spent most of their time arguing with the speakers to say that'll never work in our country and that'll never work in our profession. And Paul and I, because we'd tried this, because we'd already failed, we couldn't write fast enough. We thought this stuff was brilliant. And so we came back and we thought we're going to give this a really good go. We, we, we don't need to talk about the history. We, if we're going, to make a, we're going to make this transition from an accountant who looks backwards, um, what do you call them, Ron, a historian with a bad memory. <laughs> yeah. uh, if, we, if we were going to make this transition and, and look at um, creating wealth or helping people, then we need to focus on the future. And we also realized that if we're going to do that, then we need to free up some capacity. And one of the things that we learned at boot camp was the fact that, um, or what Rick and Paul were suggesting, is that we had too many clients. And we had to think about how we were going to get rid of some of our clients. So um, we came back uh, intent on getting rid of some clients. Uh, as, Ron, as you say, we had about, um, about 500 back in 97. Uh, and we decided to f- to, the first thing we would do is get rid of our biggest client because they're an audit client, and we decided that audits weren't for us and we were going to do other things. It meant we had to stop doing something first. So we stopped doing work, different types of work, and we stopped working for certain types of client. And uh, we did it quite slowly to start with, and uh, 
we gradually freed up capacity, but the more capacity we freed up, the more we could fill it with better quality work. And our basic theory was that instead of working for people annually, as we did back in 1987, you know, our business model is we would do something once a year for a client and hoped, absolutely hoped, that they wouldn't contact us in between um, because that would just stop us working. Uh, we moved on to a business model that said, no, we want to talk to people and we want to work with them on a monthly basis. So over a period of time, we went from about 500 clients to 50. Um, I cannot remember how long that took, but it was about two to three years, I think. We, we, we went from, from 500 to 50. And, uh, yeah, we, we, we developed quite a, a competence in, um, in, in getting rid of clients. And, uh, and these were not bad people. These are good people. And, uh, but we need to do it in the right way and uh, in a professional way, and we found a home for these people. Um, but we really got the hang of it, I think you could say, and uh, yeah, went from 500 to 50 in a relatively short period of time. And over that time, our fee income never changed. It just never changed. It stayed the same. Um, and you know, the more we got rid of stuff, the more we seemed to be able to pick up work and, and do better quality work for more appreciative people. And Paul, you know, one of the questions we get from professionals who, who uh, when we confront them with the fact that they should, you know, get rid of some low-end customers, they say, well, I work in a small town, and if I, have, if I do that, I'll take on this reputation. How did you guys keep your reputation intact, or what happened to your reputation after firing three, over 300 customers in two and a half years? How did that impact your reputation? Well, you know, I don't know if we, we <laughs> whether we worried about it too much in those days, but um, we tried, we were, you know, we always cared about these people. As I say, it's not, it's not that they weren't good people. So we did try very hard to find them very good homes, and we did. And years later, we got nothing other than um, thanks and, and, and good feedback that we had done the right thing by them. And we, we were genuinely saying to these people, that the way we are headed as a firm, we are not going to be right for you in the next few years. You know, all those mm-hmm. skills and competences we currently have, we're not going to have going forward. It's not right that we should try and look after you. So, you know, we did try very hard on selling them on the idea that we're going to find them a better home. And I think we did a good job of it. I think, um, you know, the firms who took these, these clients on, who were very grateful for them indeed, um, they, they did a good job of looking after them too. Uh, so it was a bit of a win-win. And I know that you guys have always joked, I've heard both of you tell the story multiple times that this is kind of like breaking up with yeah. a you know, yeah. spouse or a yeah, significant yeah. other. This yeah. isn't about you. It's yeah, about yeah. me. We've yeah. changed. Right. And, and, that, and, and it's, a tough, it's a tough conversation, though, isn't it? Because some of these are long-term clients. They've been with you since day one. Yeah. And, uh, you know, some of them are friends, I'm sure. And yet you guys did it in a way that was professional and you made it. And it was the right thing for the client. At the end of the day, that's what matters. Exactly. And, and we said to them, look, we're, we're not terminating our friendship. We're termi- terminating our professional relationship. You know, <laughs> if you want to be friends, that's fine. But we don't, we don't want to work for you. Um, and uh, sure enough, these people ceased to become friends over time because they found a new accountant and, and they moved on. But it wasn't easy. We actually scripted out and we had to really steal ourselves at times. We used to lock ourselves in a room to make these calls. Mm-hmm. And we had a target list of calls and you know there were certain people we really didn't want to make the call to. So we used to hold each other accountable, say, look, you do these five calls today and I'll do these five calls today. And at the end of the day, we'll have had a good day. And uh, so we need to motivate each other and encourage each other, and um, we got through it in the end. And it was, it was among the best things we've ever done as a practice. It really was. And I would imagine, Paul, that it did nothing but enhance your reputation, actually. Well, it depends what you want a reputation for, really. We were, we were looking to reposition ourselves, and the trouble is with positioning is once people have got you pigeonholed in a, in a particular way, once they think that you are the man who does the annual accounts or the tax return, then no amount of telling them that you can do other things is going to work. You know, they, they, they've, they've already decided who you are. And that's why we needed to go and find new clients. We, because with a new client, we could position ourselves however we wanted. But we couldn't do that with existing clients. And indeed, the 50 clients that we kept in those days, you know, we probably got rid of those over the following five years. Um, we've got, I think, only one or two clients from those early days left now. And I'm just curious, did any of the ones that you did fire, did, have any of them come back over time? Um, no. I don't know if we, I can't, immediately can't recollect any, actually. 
Um, what, we, what was interesting, though, is over time that we used to get referrals from these people. They mm. used to say, um, oh, they, they, they're a bit weird. They, uh, they stop doing normal stuff. But if you want something a bit unusual, um, these guys now do that type of thing. So we've got some, some weird referrals from ex-clients. And uh, indeed, there's one client that we, uh, we sacked. And he, he, he would make a big thing of because uh, he came onto our MBA course, this guy. We sacked mm. him. But he signed up to our course many years later. And he spent virtually every session on the course reminding everybody that he was one of the clients who we got rid of. Um, and uh, yeah, sort of uh, pretended to bear a grudge, but nonetheless went on to recommend us to many, many people. So um, yeah, it's, it's about what you want a reputation for, I guess. Oh, excellent. Well, so Paul, we're gonna we're we're gonna cut it off there because we need to go pay some bills. But we're we're kind of around the 1997, 1998. You guys have pivoted. You've made the transition to more business advisory services. Move away from compliance. I'm gonna get Ed in here and let him take you through the next phase of your pivot and what happened after that time period. And until then, folks, we'd like to remind you, you can check out uh, thesoulofenterprise.com. You'll have full show notes. We'll post some interesting things about Paul Kennedy, his late partner, of course, Paul O'Byrne, and uh, links to where you can find them. And I'd like to remind you, you can contact Ed or myself at asktsoe at verisage.com. And now we want to hear from our sponsor, Leading Results. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. You've experienced it. Marketing and selling has changed dramatically in the last few years. The search engine has completely altered the way customers buy. Your clients are now driving the process their way. At Leading Results, we know how to work with this. We don't just jump in and start doing. Together, we plan your marketing strategy. Install a website that gets results and create lead generation programs that drive sales. Visit leadingresults.com slash TSOE to find out more and to schedule a 30-minute conversation with us. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the foreword changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the foreword to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its foreword. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the foreword and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. And we are back with Paul Kennedy from, he was a principal at O'Burn and Kennedy. Uh, Paul, I wanted to pick up on the story and ask, how many colleagues did you have inside the organization? How many team members were there back then and then now? And then also ask, did you lose some of the people who worked for you during this transition as well? For sure, yeah. I mean, we, we came back um, from boot camp, like um, some sort of, we, it's almost like we've gone to some sort of religious camp, really. Um, we came back talking a totally different language, uh, and, it, and it frightened, I think, some of the people we had working for us at the time. Uh, and we started talking about potentially dropping compliance and doing what we called in those days value-added services and consulting and yeah a, we had a few people at the time and I think we had about 10 people when we went to boot camp and uh, they would they were scared they, they thought this this is a bit weird this stuff this is not what I went into the profession for uh, and I don't think they felt that they had the skill sets to to come with us so we had a few people de- self deselect as we put it um, <laughs> which was which is fine and, and and we weren't pretending it was right for everybody and um, we had a you know, good conversation with them and, and actually in one case at least we found them a really good job with the client so uh, yeah it was a bit of that but generally speaking I think that um, we had a good young team who were enthusiastic and were prepared to join us on the journey and, and, I don't and how have, many I don't folks know. do you have now? 
We're, well, obviously, Paul uh, died in 2008, so we're, we, we, we effectively a smaller firm, but there's eight of us now. Mm-hmm. So we're still a small firm. But still, it was, it was basically 500 uh, clients with 10 people and now 50, but you still have eight, eight folks on board. Yeah, 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 yeah. D- and, and, um, different eight folks. Yes, yes, uh, yes. I think that's true. From that time, yeah, I think uh, from that time would be a completely different eight. Yes. And so, what was the next phase in your transition? All right. So you, you've you've pivoted over. You're made, doing more and more of the well, uh, the non-compliance uh, work. And what came next? Well, I, th- I think we post boot camp, we, we got the hang of this. We called it consulting in those days. I'm really not sure what I would call it these days, but we were doing this value-added stuff. We were helping businesses plan. We were taking people through strategic planning workshops. Uh, so we had a whole list of products that, you know, four years ago we'd never heard of. And we were very careful about the clients we took on. In fact, our client selection criteria became, and still is to this day, business owners who are serious about their business, you know, people who genuinely believed it was within them to change their lives uh, through their business and wanted help to, to achieve that. So we, we focus very heavily on this particular niche, as you would say, and, um, and we were off and running and enjoying ourselves again, and Paul was no longer bored, which was good. And um, the next thing, I guess, is when we met Ron and uh, up until that moment, it hadn't occurred to us that our pricing methodologies were part of our business model. Uh, so we met Ron, or in fact, more, more accurately, Paul met Ron because he did a roadshow tour, I think, with Ron. And they got to know each other very well. And Paul would come back and say, you wouldn't believe what this guy Ron's saying. And, uh, and we used to talk about it. And you know, we both had the idea that Ron was a bit crazy. Uh, and we used to argue with him, and uh, Paul used to argue with uh, anybody he could, actually, in those days. But uh, I think he thoroughly enjoyed the debates with Ron. But gradually, um, we, we started to get this idea of value creation and value capture. And I think at the same time, in parallel, I was getting heavily into competitive strategy theory and positioning, and I was teaching myself a lot of this stuff. And we, we realized that our own wealth, our own success was going to be a direct byproducts of what we did for other people but also how we priced it and um, we, we started to uh, challenge ourselves and at that time we, we turned O'Byrne and Kennedy into what we called then the Ron Baker Laboratory so <laughs> we, 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 we would test ideas uh, and I think on a weekly basis we were coming up with ideas that we would test and uh, uh, yeah, Ron's theories could be uh, used uh, in our uh, little laboratory, and our little lab rats would go run around and see if it worked. And uh, yeah, very, very uh, great time, really interesting time. But we tried lots of different things. Some things worked, some things didn't. But we we really got this idea of billing in advance. We, we really bought into that very quickly. Uh, I would say that we mastered value pricing, but I don't think anybody ever masters value pricing. I think value pricing is something that you you spend your life struggling with, and that's how it should be. Um, But, and in those days, we still kept our timesheets, much to our embarrassment these days, but uh, we kept our timesheets. That was our little comfort blanket that uh, made us feel secure, I think. And I think, uh, I was talking to Rob today about that. I think it was 2003 we eventually dumped our timesheet. So we must have gone good two years um, post-Baker and kept timesheets. And, uh, and he, he never lets me forget it. <laughs> and what was – was there a particular event that said, hey, listen, we got to drop these timesheets. They're just not doing anything for us. Well, our view in those days was we, we, we realized that they weren't very useful, um, but we didn't see there were any harm. <laughs> You know, they were pretty benign as far as we were concerned until we started to understand anchoring and this whole idea that, you know, if you want to see, if you want to attempt to understand the client's subjectivity, bearing in mind that value is subjective, but it's not your subjectivity that counts, it's the client's subjectivity. If we've got any chance of understanding the client's subjectivity, we need to let go of anything that uh, persuades us uh, as to the, the value of the service. And uh, we found our team, they, they were still anchored in this idea that time is money and time is value. And, uh, and while you keep recording it, then you've got to be steeped in that idea. And uh, we, we had situations where 
we were apparently, according to our fixed price and our timesheets, we were highly profitable right up until the last minute. But then uh, the team managed to fill in the hole. You know, they finished to, managed to find all the time they needed to 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 make the budget up, make the budget up with their time. Uh, and we started to realise that we, we were subconsciously being um, uh, wrongly wrongly invo- inv- invoiced over, uh, sorry, influenced by. Um, uh, by the um, by, these timesheets, and, and in the end, we, we we got rid of them, and thank goodness we did. And uh, I don't think we realised the damage they were doing. But uh, looking back, uh, it was uh, we were very slow, very slow to uh, uh, pick up on that. So, did it change then the way that people worked in the organisation once they the, the 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 security blanket was finally completely gone? Yeah, yeah. Well, you see, the point is, if, if, if you've got, we really wanted our people to only look at one thing, and that is the client. And, you know, when you are, and, and my team are, they are preoccupied with the client's perception of the value, um, then we, 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 we get the, um, you know, all their behaviors are built around making sure we, we, we create and deliver value to the, to the client. And they're not worried about how long it takes. They're not, they're not, it's just of no interest to us. Um, we're only really the only thing we can focus on because the only thing we can look at is um, is the value to the client, and it, it changed our culture. It changed the way we look at the world. And so, it, it therefore, also changed your client relationships. Then, what was what was the reaction of most of your clients when you got rid of the billable hour? I mean, I presume that that you had gotten rid of so many of them. Now, all of a sudden, you're down to fifty or so. Let's call it a hundred clients. And now you're changing the pricing model on them. How did they react? Well, um, we would, we, the, when we went to fixed pricing, uh, we were very, um, we did it very simply, really, and that is we we gave, we gave people a fixed price, and uh, I wouldn't call it value pricing in those days. We just did the timesheet in advance, really. We just, um, you know, we just tried to work out how long it was going to take us in those days, and come up with a fee that we thought seemed reasonable, and we used to tell the client that that's what it's going to be, and we promised not to change it. Um, and that gradually changed into a proper fixed price agreement with Ron's help and proper guarantees. And then we gradually got the idea of value pricing, and we, uh, we you know, we gradually uh, moved into the what you might think of as the the OBK business model. But it took us time. It, we we made lots of mistakes. We. We tried things, some things did work, some things didn't work, but gradually over time we, we became focused on um, client value and that's really the only thing that counts. And I, in looking at your website this morning, I picked up a, a couple of different things that I wanted to ask you uh, about. One of them is that you say right on your values page that we expect our clients and suppliers to treat our team members with respect. Why, why do you have that on your website? Well, this is just a. Paul and I shared certain values, and we only work for people who share our values, really. And uh, we we wouldn't want to work for anybody who didn't respect us or our team. Uh, and indeed, we, we have deselected clients over the years because of that one issue. You know, that if they're not prepared to treat my my people who are my team, I have enormous respect for the people I work with. And if they aren't prepared to share those sort of values, then we don't want to work for them. And the same thing you talk about that, and I just find this language so fantastic and great because you want to talk about differentiation. This is not on other accounting firms' websites, right? Where you say we are a teaching and learning organization. That that makes you vulnerable, doesn't? You, to, to, for you to say, hey, listen, we're still learning here. There's not a single a firm that I can think of who would put that on their website. Yeah, but it's true, isn't it, Ed? <laughs> oh, of course it's true. Of course it's true. Yeah, and why would we be afraid of the truth? Um, we, we, I think if you read on, it goes on to say that when clients leave us or when team members leave us, they leave us stronger than when they came. Uh, and this is our philosophy. If you think about what purpose an accounting firm has, and we, we struggle with this whole idea of what our real purpose is. But, um, you know, my people could go and work for other accounting firms. My clients could be serviced by other accounting firms. What really makes, justifies our existence is the fact that we are there to make people better, whether it's our people or whether it's our clients. Uh, the whole rationale of OBK is that people become better and stronger. And we say this to our clients. They said, you know, you might not be with us forever. You might only work for us for a period of time. 
But what we are committed to is that whatever, from whatever you come to us to whenever you leave, you will leave us better than when you came. And uh, we think long and hard about um, developing each, a plan for each client to make sure that's true. And we've only got about a minute before our next break, but I want to ask you about one of your values, which is a single word, three letters long, and that is fun. Tell me about fun at OBK. <laughs> well, this is a post-boot camp idea. I think uh, Paul Dunn or Rick Payne used to say that, hang on, you know, one of the four purposes of a business must be to enjoy it. And, um, you know, we, we, we came back off boot camp intent on trying to make the whole process more fun. And this is off the back of Paul being terribly bored with the accounting profession. So that, um, yeah, it was a, a fairly natural thing to do. And it, you, you, know, you don't need to justify that as a purpose, do you? Fun. It, it's, it's self-evident, is it not? And, uh, and uh, we, <laughs> we, we try and have fun. We try, to, we try to make the work. I don't mean we sit around laughing the whole time. I mean that we take our work seriously, but we, we enjoy um, what we do. But also we take time out to, to, to have fun. We do things regularly with the team. We go out, we have our quarterly days out and do various things. Um, yeah, we want people to come and enjoy the process. And that's, that's all part of, uh, that's all part of the, the fun idea. Outstanding. Well, we're up against our next break, but we want to remind you that we will post full show notes in our interview with Paul Kennedy as on our website at thesoulofenterprise.com. Please keep the reviews coming, both of the iTunes podcast and also of the book, The Soul of Enterprise, which is available on Amazon. But right now we want to hear from our sponsor, Azamba. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. We believe great companies can become even greater by challenging the status quo within their companies. The latest challenge to your status quo? The way people buy has changed. Buyers now control the majority of the front end of the sales process. Sellers must learn to facilitate a buying process, not conduct a sales process. Social buying signals are an opportunity for sales. Learn more. Go to quantacrm.com slash ABC to request a copy of the white paper, Always Be Closing, a guide to the new art of social selling. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the forward to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its forward. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the forward and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. All right. Well, welcome back, everybody. We're here with Paul O'Byrne, and I'm live with him in uh, the UK. He's been uh, taking me around. We spoke today at a tax conference, Paul, which was really uh, a lot of fun. But, you know, I always introduce you, or when I talk about you, I say O'Byrne and Kennedy in the UK is one of those innovative firms on the planet. And I want to ask you about some of the reasons why we believe, I don't know if you would say that, but I'll say that about you, and I want to tell you why we think that. And one of the reasons, I think, is you you established something, and I don't know the exact date you established this, but you run an MBA program the OBK MBA. Can you explain that? Yeah. Well, once we established that our target market was going to be um, business owners who were serious about their business, then we, we looked into what the generic needs of that target were, uh, and we found the that training was one of the things they wanted. They wanted to be taught. And uh, we started off as a bit of a self-help book club, actually, as Paul was an avid reader and uh, we had clients who liked to read books. So we used to bring clients in once a month and do like a book club and discuss a book. But 
it, it turned out that, of course, Paul read books a lot faster than everybody else did, and uh, and he gradually morphed into a, a, a training package. After doing that for a year or so, we decided to go away and um, design what we now call the OBK MBA. So we looked at all the MBA um, courses and the, the material they covered, and we had a lot of our own material that we wanted to put in, so we, we designed this course. Now, you know, what I wanted to do is I wanted to spend a year researching this and um, getting it absolutely perfect before launching it on the market. Fortunately, I was in business with Paul, in business with Paul O'Byrne, who said that it'll never ever happen. He says, "No, I think what we're going to do is we're going to do it next month." <laughs> and uh, you've got no time to prepare. And of course, I was up all night the night before preparing, as he knew I would. And, and over time, we did it badly. Uh, looking back, I don't think it was a particularly good course when we first started it. But, of course, you've got to start doing things badly before you improve, and that was Paul's philosophy. And uh, we improved, and we proved fast because we were proud, and um, we put an enormous amount of effort in the research and the reading, and uh, it was a great way of um, collating a lot of the intellectual capital that we were, we were building. The other thing is that I think it's Stephen Covey says, if you really want to learn something, then there's no better way than of learning anything than teach it. Uh, and so we thought, well, you know, whether the clients get anything out of this is, uh, is, is um, not necessarily the objective. You know, by standing up and having to t- teach this stuff for three hours a month, then if nobody else is going to learn it, we're going to learn it. And, um, and, it's, and it's become quite a well-known uh, program in my sector. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's a real uh, draw for potential clients, and it's become a real differentiation for us. It helps us work with clients so much better, and, uh, and, and apart from the else, it's great fun. And uh, thanks to you guys, by the way, for providing me with enormous amounts of fantastic material. <laughs> so, uh, well, well, Paul, explain the logistics behind it. I mean, I know you limit the number of attendees, and I know you take them on field trips and show them maybe other, uh, you know, of your customers' businesses. But talk about that a little bit and also talk about what are some of the topics in the curriculum because I, I had the privilege to speak at a couple of, of your programs and you guys go into quite depth on a, on a broad range of topics. Yeah, well, we, we teach competitive strategy theory. Um, we teach pricing. We teach uh, all sorts of uh, management and leadership issues we, we cover. We cover finance um, although we do two segments on finance, and the second one is all about what finance doesn't teach you or how misleading finance could be. But we, yeah, we cover broadly what you would co- cover on an MBA course, except we tailor everything to the small business owner. It's a very small group. We, we target um, between eight and ten people on the course. It's run on a calendar year basis. So we start, um, we start in January, finish in December. Um, we've got a training room, and we've got access to some fantastic material. We get guest speakers. Um, as you know, Ron, as you say, you, uh, you've uh, guested on it, as of, as of other people. And, uh, yeah, we go on a field trip once a year, uh, and we have a bit of fun with it, and uh, a few case studies. In fact, there's a, uh, I think it's about a 10,000-word case study that they have to study and present on at the end of the course. But it, it's, we try to teach at a reasonably high level, um, and, but, but nonetheless make it acceptable to people who have never been to to college and uh, you know that's the challenge we have really to teach theory in such a way that um, a, a very mixed audience can pick up and uh, and use this stuff uh, and it's very popular it's um, it's good fun really enjoy it and Paul this is this is it again I want to uh, bring up uh, just ask you about how some of the things that you do inside your organization now without the timesheets and I guess the first place I'll start is what do you do for project management at OBK? Okay, well, um, many years ago when we ditched our timesheets, we uh, decided to invent a little tool which we now call VivaTrack. And what VivaTrack does is it translates the fixed price agreement that we've agreed with the clients, so we've agreed the outcomes with the client. We now need to translate that into what are we going to do? So it's a piece of software that has effectively built, we've got all our products in there. Now, when I say products, this is not a term we ever use with clients. These are things that we think we know what we're selling. So if a client buys, for example, a forecast, we have the five five steps of uh, making sure we get the forecast right. So we we built... 
inside the software, there's templates for everything that we do. So as soon as we know a client has signed up a fixed price agreement, that, that automatically creates all the steps that we need to carry out to, to, to do the work. And indeed, each one of those steps can be allocated around the team so that um, we, can, we can plan who's going to do what when. And within each template, there are milestones so that we can keep track of whether we're, we're uh, on schedule. And what we've always done, we've done this for many years, is whenever we sign up a fixed price agreement, we also sign up to a timetable with the client. So we know when we're supposed to be doing everything. The client knows what they're supposed to be doing, uh, and that's all tracked within VivaTrack so that we can see whether we're on target or behind target. And, and that's the tension that we need in our organization. You know, we, don't, we can't sign up a client and do it whenever we want. We want to sign up a client and do it when we, we've agreed to do it. And uh, VivaTrack keeps us honest. Uh, it's a simple tool. It does a few other things for us, but it's really it's not it is not uh, complex project management. It's simply saying, do we all know what we're doing, and do we know if we've done it or not? And and just to clarify for those listening, when you say on target, because you know nine out of ten accountants who hears that is thinking, well, how do they, if they don't do timesheets, how do they know if they're on on target because they don't know if they're what's billable and non billable? But that's not what you mean, right? You're not talking about effort. You're talking about duration. Are we on target? Are we meeting the date that we said we were going to meet? Is that correct? Exactly, exactly right. Exactly right. So if we said that we're going to meet the client with a draft forecast or a draft set of accounts, there's a date in the diary when we said we're going to do that. And um, are we past that date? And have we done it? Excellent. And I want to ask you also about something that I know from my conversations with Ron that you have really embraced inside OBK, and that is the concept of the after-action review. Ron and I did an entire show on this, but I'd really be curious as to, to your take on the after-action review, how, how it's impacted your business, and any tips that you might have for people who are doing after-action reviews. Yeah, well, Ron introduced us to this idea of after-action reviews. Um, but it's it's really only the last few years, looking back at all the things we have, well, all the things we've done, that we've realised just how powerful this thing is. So it's a simple exercise in, in in looking back and reflecting on what went well, what didn't go well, how we could improve it. If we did this again, how would we do it differently? And it's it's been transformative. It really has. And if you look back at all the good things that we've achieved and all the uh, 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 good redesigns that we've done on our business it's all come from this process and I love it I think it's a great process I mean it's very difficult to plan uh, innovation <laughs> uh, I think uh, is it uh, George Gilder who says that innovation always comes as a surprise and, and that's why it's such a difficult thing to plan so what you, all you can do is plan a process that might give rise to innovation uh, so we, we, we've been using this for many years. So our standard meeting, our monthly meeting we have with our team, after action reviews are on the agenda. Um, more than that, I've introduced after actions to many of my clients, uh, and they and they love them. And uh, we've done some fantastic things with some of our clients through using this simple, unbelievably simple process. Uh, simple process. It just seems to generate the ideas and the innovation, and and m- many of the ideas are simple and easy and very quick to implement. And uh, no, I love it as a process. I think it's uh, it's helped us with our clients and it's done wonders for us over the years. Um, and it creates a great culture when you've got people standing up saying, "Look, this week I screwed up. You know, I got this wrong. I don't want you to screw up in the same way as I've screwed up. So, what can we do as an organisation to make sure this never happens again?" And it, that's great when you've got a culture where everybody's um, just just looking about, uh, just looking to improve, and not worried about uh, not worried about being hauled over the coals for um, things they got wrong. And 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 I would imagine that your team members feel the same way about this. The eight folks that you have now, this is just something that's become part of their lives, right? Yeah, uh, and and I think once once you have. Uh, once you have an open culture in this way, then you, you, you don't need a formal process. I mean, we have a, an assembly process, which is a standing meeting every morning, and quite often that's when they come out now. People say, I'll tell you what happened yesterday, and they'll tell you what happened. A lot of, the only problem with these after-action reviews, a lot of them are very negative. People are very quick to point out what went wrong. I, I think the, 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 what I think you need, we need to do as, uh, as facilitators in this process is to really to encourage people to recognize when things go well. 
because um, quite often that, what goes well isn't replicated unless we can uh, we can bottle it. We need to bottle up what we've we've got right. So I try to try and try and steer the agenda in that direction. But um, but it, but it's a good habit. It's a good way of you know we're constantly thinking about how can we do better. And uh, yeah, it's good. The team team embrace it. That's a it's a great point though, Paul. That we really do have to extract out. Hey, what's what's going well here? Because in in a lot of ways. We don't see those things because that it we, we, we don't it, we're we're fish in water right and the water is the stuff that's good, uh, and yeah. we really got to make sure to, to to point those things out. So as you said, they can continue to happen. Yeah, and in, in England at least we're very humble and uh, we don't like to boast. <laughs> so uh, when things if we've done something good, when we keep it to ourselves generally. So uh, there is a challenge certainly over here that um, to to extract this from people and say, look, you know, you, we all know you did well. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about how we can all do equally well in a similar project or on a similar occasion. Yes, so, so true. One, one of the things that my mentor once told me is, is he said to me, Ed, you have to get better at accepting compliments. And I thought that But as it turns out, I think it was really important advice, and I've actually worked on it. So it's, a, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's an art to accept a compliment well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Well, especially in this side of the, the, the Atlantic, yeah. Well, listen, we're up against our, our break. This hour is absolutely flying by. I want to want to thank for Paul for being a guest, and we have one more segment with him, but we want to remind you that right now you can look at the show notes that we're going to produce for this show and all of our other shows as well as listen to every single show that we've ever done, and I think we're get, closing in on, on show number 90 soon. I can't believe that either, and that is available on thesoulofenterprise.com. Of course, we love getting your emails at ask. T-S-O-E at Verisage.com, so keep them coming. But right now we're going to hear from our sponsor and my employer, Sage. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Four new employees. A 20% increase in revenue. Being one of the 9 million women business owners in the U.S. These are your proudest numbers, your landmarks of growth and success. Sage helps you achieve business milestones with cloud and software solutions that lead to deeper financial insights. Believe in your numbers. See what Sage can do for your business. Visit BelieveInYourNumbers.com today. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have, but have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the forward to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its forward. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the forward and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. All right. Well, welcome back, everybody. Here we're here with uh, Verisage Institute colleague uh, Paul O'Byrne. We're talking about why he is the most innovative firm, or at least one of the most innovative firms. And Paul, I want to ask you about something that uh, I forced you to talk about this at the Verisage retreat in Boston, and I, and I still think it, it it shocked people. It shocked me when I first heard you say it. But you have a very unique perspective on relationships with your clients. Can you talk about how you renew your vows every year with every client? Well, we, we uh, not necessarily every year, but we have a, a contract. Our fixed price agreement is a contract, and it has a um, outcomes, and we have uh, as a duration. So we will uh, get to an end at some point, and we and at that point they're free to do whatever they want, and they don't have to stay with us. Indeed, we don't have to keep them. 
And we like that freedom. We like the idea that they should be free to move on if they think that's appropriate, and we should be move, free to move on if we don't think it's appropriate to carry on working for them. So we, we actively encourage that sort of dialogue at the end of a contract so that we effectively sign them up again. We, we, we market to them, we look at their needs, we, we talk to them, and we give them every opportunity to go elsewhere because we don't want people staying with, with us through because they're lethargic. We want people to stay with us because they want to stay with us. And if they're not getting the value, then we want to talk about it. We want to find out. And uh, you know, there's it's nothing worse than people just putting up with you and staying with you and not telling you what they think. So it's a, a genuine discussion we have with people. And, uh, and if you really care about your client and if it's right for them to move on, then why wouldn't you have that, that discussion? It's a, it, you know, we've got some clients we've had for many, many, many years. And, that's, and it's not a, you know, we're not firing you and re, re, re-engaging you every year, but we still like to have the conversation. How are we doing? You know, is this working for you? You know, are you getting value? Uh, what can we do to make more value? Do you still think we're the right firm for you? And uh, yeah, for the clients I've known very well, they take that all very. Um, they think it's all very funny, um, and they think it's quite strange that I should have that conversation. But you know, it's still a it's a healthy conversation, and I want my people in the office to think that we're on our last chance for every, with every single client. You know, this is this is it. We're right at the end of the of, of, of our dealings with them, and unless we create value uh, and justify their loyalty, then we they're, they're going to go, and they're going to go because we're going to give them the chance to go. So our people, my people, are constantly thinking, how are we going to retain this client because we're going to give them every opportunity to leave at the end of this contract and we're going to want them to stay because they want to stay, not for any other reason. And there are occasions when they don't. It does happen. And there are times when we don't want to carry on the, the, the engagement. We don't own these people. You know, they're, they're free to do what they want to do and uh, we're free to work for who we want to work for. And it's a mature discussion and I just think it's the right thing to do. And, you know, the more choices you give them, then, then the more likely they are to stay, weirdly, but, uh, but stay for the right reasons. And that's, that's, for me, the most important thing. I would hate to work for a client who didn't want to use our firm. That, that, would be, that would be a waste of my life, frankly, and uh, that's not what I want to do. I want people to be with us because they want to be with us, not for any other reason. Wow, there's there so many profound things in there, but it, I kind of view this as, it's you know, the service guarantee, we always say, that propels the, the team and the entire firm to do right by the customer because with a service guarantee, your money is where your mouth is, but the, the renewal of the vows, the whole, let's talk about the relationship and should we continue it, is kind of like the service guarantee on steroids, isn't it? Yeah. Well, I mean, the other thing to bear in mind is a lot of our clients um, retain other accountants. So we don't pretend we can do all things for our clients. So quite often when we sign up our clients, we're also signing them up to other firms of accountants to do the things that we don't do. Uh, So, for example, we don't do auditing. We don't do certain payroll work or bookkeeping. Uh, So a lot of our clients already have accountants. So, you know, it's a quite natural thing for us to say, you know, we're, we're here to help and we're here to create value but don't think you've got to use us you know you you can carry on using your existing accountant for other things and yeah i just think it's a it's a healthy honest uh, upfront way of um of dealing with a relationship well i can tell you i've presented that to many accounting groups who wanted to talk about it even today although i i think we would have shocked the people today <laughs> they probably would have went into a coma but it it scares people most to to death but then they think about it intellectual and they say just like you said nobody owns these customers we don't really own them so we might as well have that conversation with them and i think there's a hidden brilliance in that that it but it's such a scary counterintuitive idea yeah well i mean i think a lot of people think the great thing about the accounting profession is you've got this until further notice order um (laughs) but that might that makes you lazy that you know that makes you complacent and i think uh, this, this cultural thing we have where we are paranoid about value, paranoid about losing clients because of insufficient value. And we're not cheap. I mean, that's the point. We, we are people paying us uh, a premium for the, the work we're doing. And we don't, uh, you know, we don't assume that, um, that we're just going to work for them until, uh, until the end of their, their days. You know, we give them every chance to, uh, 
to go go elsewhere if they want to. We wanted to make a conscious decision to choose us on a regular basis. Wow, you know, I remember Paul O'Byrne once telling me that once you guys made the transition to this and the value pricing and really internalized the subjective theory of value, that your firm became obsessed with value. Mm. And and just talking to you and just listening to some of your responses, I can see just that, that bleeds through your attitude that you're, you and your entire team are just so obsessed with the outcome and the value to the, to the, to the customer. And well, I just think that's awesome. And it's thanks to you, Ron, and uh, very sage colleagues that, um, that, that there is, that's the reason we think like that, because we've been influenced by uh, people like yourself. But, the, but we, are, we genuinely believe, and I think a lot of people understand this intellectually, but they don't necessarily get it emotively, but we genuinely believe our success is direct, direct byproduct of how we can create value for other people. And if we're not creating value for other people, then the long-term impact on us, it will reflect on us. It's really, really important for us to focus on that value creation process. Um, and, and that long-term is our only ability to capture some of that value and to, frankly, have an enjoyable uh, working life. Well, Paul, that's a great segue. Let me ask you this. What do you think is the number one issue facing the accounting profession? Well, I, I, I'm not sure I can speak about the accounting profession, and I know you're into uh, the uh, the future of the profession and the impacts on technology, and I understand all that. Uh, for me, the, the thing that frustrates me most about our profession is this uh, lack of focus, this desire to constantly be all things to all people, uh, to, to constantly broaden the uh, focus that uh, we have and, and, and try to pretend we can do everything. Uh, the, the, the truth is what we need to do in our profession and the, and the thing that we did that um, enabled us to do so many of these other things is that we became focused. We became very clear about what value we created and for whom. Um, you know, as uh, I think uh, Zig Ziglar says, you need to move from being a wandering generality to becoming a meaningful specific. And <laughs> I think, uh, you know, you need to know what you're good at and stick to it, really. Uh, and that's where you can start to create value. That's when you get the economies of scope, as Michael Porter would describe it. And that's when you start to create real value. And, uh, and that's, that's, that's what's wrong with our profession, I think. I think all the other professions, and I'm really talking about the smaller practice because I know the bigger firms do specialize and they do have this focus. But in, among small practices, we, we're still seeing people trying to be all things. And we, we are very comfortable with the idea that our clients will use other firms of accountants. And I think our profession needs to wake up to that idea that we haven't got to try and do everything for our clients. We can share clients. We, we right. don't, some accountants can do some services and we can do some other services. You know, we, we don't have to own the client. We don't have to have a complete exclusivity. That's just not, that's not required in our profession. What one piece of advice in the last minute or so that we have here, what one piece of advice would you give a firm that is thinking about making some of these transitions you've made, whether it's in the strategic positioning position, uh, area or the value pricing and getting rid of timesheets? What, what is your one piece of advice? Well, I think they all, they all sit together, really. I think it's, it's the that holistic view and, and belief of um, uh, or, or um, that belief that a, a business, the, the theory of a business is that it's there to create and cap, capture value. And, and the only way you're going to be able to create value is to become uh, very focused. And, and that means saying no. That means turning work away. That means being comfortable with other clients, other accountants working for your same clients. But I think that's an important part of it. And then it's really to stay focused on value. And you're not going to be able to stay focused on value where you're filling in timesheets. You know, it's just crazy. I just, you know, looking back, I mean, we, are, we were a firm who kept timesheets. But I've struggled, really struggled to remember why we thought that was important. Because to me, it just seems such a crazy thing to do, um, given that it's just so irrelevant to the client. Right, right. No, great advice. It, it reminds me of what Tim, our colleague Tim Williams says, a, a firm is defined by the clients or, or the things it doesn't do and the clients it doesn't have. And Paul, this has been fascinating. I wish it was longer. We, this was the fastest hour of my life. But uh, great story. Thank you so much for coming on The Soul of Enterprise. This has been a fantastic discussion. And folks, we'll put up some videos of the late Paul O'Byrne so you can see uh, his, his influence and, and uh, we'll link to uh, O'Byrne and Kennedy's website. But Paul, thank you so much for appearing on the Soul of Enterprise. It's my real pleasure, and you know, thank you for all the all the things you've done for us over the years, Ron. Thanks very much. Thank, thank you. you. And Ed, what's up for next week? 
Well, we have our Free Rider Friday next week, Ron. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to that, and I'll see you in 167 hours. This has been the soul of enterprise, business, and the knowledge economy, sponsored by SAGE, energizing the success of business and communities around the world through the imagination of our people and smart technology. Join us next week, folks, on Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, when we'll be doing Free Rider Friday. In the meantime, feel free to visit us at thesoulofenterprise.com for more information, and we will post full show notes and uh, uh, information on O'Burn and Kennedy and where you can find Paul Kennedy. And you can email Ed or myself at asktsoe at verisage.com. Thank you so much for listening, folks, and we'll see you here next week. Have a great weekend.